Zellweger's opening number, By Myself, is an absolute barn burner. A fabulous performance within a performance that not only captures Garland's power, but her nervous energy and darting physical tics. That's from Anne Hornaday of Washington Post talking about Judy, one of the films we're reviewing this time here on Cinephile. Thanks, as always, to supporting us here. Please do go to Apple Podcasts, subscribe, rate, and review, and spread the love. That's how we keep things rolling here, so I appreciate everyone who makes an effort to do so. We've got a great episode today, including Tara Wood. She is the documentarian behind QT8, The First Eight. If you're a Tarantino fan, you are going to want to watch this documentary and hear all the stories that she tells me all about making it talking to all of Tarantino's collaborators. It's also the final episode of The Bada Binge, so we'll talk about the ending, what happens to Tony, and our Mount Rushmore, the favorite Sopranos characters. I want to thank Daddy-O, who says, want to listen to a podcast? Checks in a file. What's the scoop on the movie? Checks in a file. Random referrals, random quotes from performers, passing along a Bob Newhart denigrate. Stuff like that. That is uh, one of the funniest jokes I've ever heard, which was Martin Short telling Seinfeld on Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee, I don't mean to denigrate country music. And for those in the audience who like country music, denigrate means to put down. <laughs> uh, also from Alex, my one Sebastian, while I do enjoy the Bada Binge, a cinephile movie club would make a great replacement. Give us a movie to watch and then discuss it on the following episode. Okay, you know what? I will follow that away with Joe. We may actually do that. That's not a bad idea here, getting a movie club going, because this is actually the final episode of the Bada Binge. So thank you so much to everybody who put their reviews and put their ideas in there. Let's get this thing rolling and talk about Judy. 30 years for starring in The Wizard of Oz, Judy Garland arriving in London performs sold-out shows the talk of the town nightclub. While there, she reminisces with friends and fans, begins a whirlwind romance with musician Mickey Deans, her soon-to-be fifth husband. Judy Garland, terrible at marriage. Connor Garland, great at hockey. The movie is directed by Rupert Gould. I don't particularly know his work. And honestly, there's one reason to watch it, and that is Renee Zellweger. It is a fantastic performance. She is... Uh, Fantastic. Quite, quite simply, she is a knockout as Judy Garland. She is not only a doppelganger for her with the hair and the makeup and the wrinkles, but as Anne Hornaday mentioned in her review, even the, the ticks and the characteristics. I mean, she, she really kind of portrays the vulnerability of Judy Garland late in her life. And it was a tragic life. She was dead at 47. The movie picks up when she's only got six months left. And, you know, she's trying to find a home for her kids. She's dealing with the fact she's her career is faded. Uh, you know, money is tough. Uh, you've got addiction. I mean, it's all over the place. So I think that those who loved Judy Garland, i.e. Liza Minnelli, will probably will not like this film because it's showing, you know, Judy Garland at her final stages. But in terms of drama, I mean, that is a, a good time to do it because you're seeing somebody late in life fading and yet trying to restore their past glory and trying to find some humor and charm along the way. But I think ultimately it's not a particularly good script. It's kind of a lightweight script. And the direction isn't very firm. I think if you had a better director like a Sam Mendes doing it, he's got 1917 coming out Christmas Day. Can't wait for that. If you had a stronger script that focused on Garland's lifestyle, it would have been better. I mean, it's always tricky with a biopic. You don't know, should I tell the entire story over two hours or three hours or three and a half like The Irishman? Or do you just focus on one chapter of their lives and tell that as well as you can? That's what Judy does. It's just focusing on Garland, you know, with six months to go and just, you know, a couple of weeks in her life. But I think that the movie lacks then the essence of what made Judy Garland so special. And even though they do have a sequence where she sings somewhere over the, the rainbow, I would have loved to have seen, you know, a sequence of her on set doing The Wizard of Oz. I would have liked to have seen a young child actor going through that. I mean, listen, you say Judy Garland, the first thing you're thinking of is Wizard of Oz. So I would just think, you know, no matter what, you make a film about Sinatra, you got to have a sequence where he's singing my way. You make a movie about Judy Garland, you got to see her in The Wizard of Oz, you got to see her with a rainbow and, I don't know, interacting with uh, Scarecrow and the Cowardly Lion or something like that. So to me, that was a bit of a miss. They did not tell the entire uh, portion of her film life. And, and overall, I mean, listen, it's a kind of movie that will court awards by virtue of its topic. Hollywood loves nothing more than itself and a little bit of narrow ga naval gazing. And uh, Zellweger certainly is going to get nominated. She may actually win Best Actress Oscar. I think right now it's either going to be he, her or Scarlett Johansson for Marriage Story. So she's obviously a good actress. And I think she's playing off some of her own persona. The fact that she's been away for a few years has dealt with some personal issues. So it's not only a comeback for Renee Zellweger, but it's also a reminder why biopics always do so well with the Academy. It doesn't matter if they're fictionalized, um, you know, like... Uh, any number of musical biopics where it's actually based on a true story, like uh, Walk the Line or Ray or, I mean, those, those films generally tend to do pretty well. So 
Uh, Zellweger is going to get nominated, but I thought as a movie, it was relatively lightweight. Joe, do you have any interest in watching Judy? And by the way, thank you to the BFCA, Broadcast Film Critics Association. Uh, that's how I got the screener for it. I got to save $13.50 from going to see it. Joe, are you going to watch Judy? Yeah, I'll watch Judy. I'm, I'm, I'm excited. I mean, just for the reasons that you've said. Every review that I've read has said that the movie itself is Brene Zellweger's movie, and you, people need to see it for how she plays Judy Garland. And the Academy, they love biopics. They love it when actors play other historical figures. So I'm interested to see how it is, and I will be watching it. All right, next up, Pain and Glory. This is also about somebody fading late in life, although this time it is a fictionalized movie, or is it? How much of Pedro Almodovar does he put into the film as Antonio Banderas playing him, his longtime muse? It's a story of Salvador Mayo, a film director in his physical decline. Some of it is actually physical. He is declining. Some of it is just about his childhood and his life in his 60s, his first desires, his first loves, his early discovery of cinema, why he's been struggling with film ever since then. So it's very much Federico Fellini-type territory here. This is, you know, a film which is semi-autobiographical, you want to say. It's about creation. It's about the difficulty of separating one's life and art. Ultimately, it's about somebody in the twilight of their career. And I do find it fascinating. And you're starting to see a real pattern here. The Irishman is about what? It's an elegiac film about organized crime and those figures who are mournful and melancholy and examining their own mortality. What is Judy about? It's about Judy Garland, a once great artist fading away into obscurity. What is Pain and Glory about? This is about a once great director fading away his last few days, trying to find some salvation in his art. So it's interesting what the, these movies are all about. They seem to kind of be treading the similar terrain. And um, in the case of Judy, which I only give two Maple Leafs, which is just for Renee Zellweger's performance, for Pain and Glory, I'm giving three Maple Leafs because I think if you're an Almodovar's fan, then you'll enjoy the movie because of his very unique sense of style and um, his semblance of artistic need. And, and I think even his rawness and, and his, you know, that, that naked ambition that he puts up there on the screen and, and basically says, okay, yeah, a lot of this is me trying to figure out which one is which, but I'm going to be honest and I'm going to be authentic about trying to tell the story, but a film director who certainly has parallels to myself. And the best part of the movie, once again, is the acting. Antonio Banderas, who is such a good actor, you think about Desperado, I know he burst onto the scene and guns blazing. Well, here he's very muted. Um, it's a very subtle, understated performance. He's a guy coming to terms with his own mortality. He's a guy in such pain physically, he starts snorting heroin just to kind of get some sort of release and all of a sudden realizes he's hooked on heroin. Um, he's focusing on the past, you know, the great lost love of his life as this man comes back into his life uh, and tells him that now, you know, he was the last man he was with. Now he's got a wife, he's got kids, etc. So it's um, definitely a story about a man looking back rather than looking forward. And like I said, if you're an Almodovar fan, then I think you'll enjoy Pain and Glory. I think Antonio Banderas will get nominated for Best Actor. There is only five slots. So I think right now as it stands, you're looking at Adam Driver for Marriage Story. Uh, you're looking at Joaquin Phoenix for Joker. Hopefully De Niro for The Irishman. There's three right there. And then Banderas will squeak in there, I think, with a fourth slot. And who knows what the fifth slot could be. But um, maybe Mark Ruffalo for Dark Waters or... There's a few other movies out there percolating as well. But I think Banderas is a good chance. Certainly, he's gotten a lot of awards and recognition uh, on the awards circuit. So I mean, in case you're you know, a fan of awards and thinking, hey, do I got to go see this just because the Oscars? Well, I think Banderas is a good chance to get nominated. I do think the film will get nominated for Best Foreign Film because Almodovar certainly is a world-renowned filmmaker and uh, clearly a guy who is beloved beyond just Spain. Uh, he's really somebody who is well-respected on the world stage. Uh, now time for some entertainment news. Ricky Gervais back as Golden Globes host for the fifth, and he says very last time. This is phenomenal news. I know the news came out last Wednesday, but honestly, Gervais is so funny. He's one of my favorite comedians. He's so great in that type of venue because, you know, he, he just hammers the fact and needles the fact that this crowd takes itself so seriously. I mean, the fact that he wants, you know, I like a drink as much as the next man. Unless that next man is Mel Gibson. And then Mel Gibson came out pretending like he was drunk. I mean, God, so funny. He also took a huge shot at Tim Allen once when he introduced him and Tom Hanks. I mean, Gervais, I think, is one of the all-time great hosts. Billy Crystal certainly very classy and charming. He's done the Oscars eight times. But if you just want somebody who is funny, even if it's a little bit mean-spirited, I think Gervais, Joe, is as good as it gets. Oh, yeah, I love it. I, I just love a good roast. All these award shows seem to be, you know, some hosts can pander at times, but Ricky Gervais will just tell you straight up how he feels. 
No doubt about it. Spike Lee's also going to direct a 1980s set hip-hop Romeo and Juliet tale, Prince of Cats. That's interesting. Spike getting back in the mix. Obviously won an Academy Award uh, for Black Klansman and now going to do something completely different here. You know, Prince of Cats. It's interesting. It's uh, based on a graphic novel written and illustrated by Ron Wimberly. So anytime you get, you know, Spike returning to the 1980s hip-hop scene, this should be very interesting. He's going to rewrite the script and also work with Wimberly and another writer on it as well. Uh, described as an 80s set hip-hop take on Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, the tragic star-crossed love story seen through the eyes of Tybalt, or is it Tybalt? I can't remember now. Juliet's angry and dual-loving cousin. So look forward to that film if you're a fan of Spike Lee's and see what else he is up to. That does uh, have some interest to it. Elsewhere, Beverly Hills Cop sequel to Eddie Murphy. That moves to Netflix. I I think this is a horrible idea. I love Eddie Murphy. Joe and I really did like uh, Dolomite is my name. But the fact that we're talking about another Beverly Hills, like the third one was just brutal. What can you possibly have now with Beverly Hills Cop? I mean, obviously Netflix, God, the one thing about them, they love content. They'll take whatever you can get. But after getting some of the best reviews of his career in a long time, you know, Beverly Hills Cop 3 was 1994, commercial and critical disappointment. Now we're going to get another one here on Netflix. I mean, I'm just holding a hope that Coming to America, the sequel, is going to be better. That's coming out in 2020. But another Beverly Hills Cop, Joe, seriously, we we don't need this, do we? No, I don't think I don't. I really don't think we do. I, I know he's doing more stand up and he's working again, and I, and I like to see him coming back. But this just seems kind of unnecessary. Yeah, this is uh, a little gluttonous. Also, prepare the memes. Nicholas Cage is soon going to be playing a heightened version of himself. I really don't know what to do with this, but I mean, you think about Nick Cage like just another heightened version of Nick Cage. I couldn't even imagine what that is, but yep, it's Nick Cage playing Nick Cage or a version of Nick Cage. He's played a lot of characters, obviously over the top, very different, and courtesy of Variety, they said, as they put it, they could play the ultimate weirdo himself. Cage's movie, The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, is going to be directed by Tom Gornikin from a script he co-wrote with Kevin Etten. And uh, yeah, it's Nick Cage doing Nick Cage things. Starring the actor as a heightened version of himself, a terrifying concept, he accepts a million dollars to attend a superfan's birthday party and is then forced to invoke several of his iconic characters to get out of a dangerous situation. Uh, this has either brilliant or flop written all over it, right, Joe? Oh, I say give him best actor right now. 2021 at the Oscars, Nick Cage. Let's do it. <laughs> Uh, also, my man Dave Cricks loves Bill Murray. Some more Bill Murray news. Bill Murray and Dave Franco more. They're going to star on the Fairly Brothers Quibi series, The Now. So if you're coming what the, the Fairly Brothers are going to be up to, obviously, Peter Fairley won an Academy Award for Green Book. So the Fairly Brothers got a little bit more momentum here going on. And uh, this is a comedy series from Peter and Bobby Fairley. Bill Murray, Alyssa Milano appearing in recurring roles. You got O'Shea Jackson and Daryl Hannah as well. Uh, the show is called The Now. So Fairly Brothers trying their hand at comedy as well. In case you're big fans of theirs, that's where that is. All right, time now for our very special guest. On June 14th, your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your team, Riley! Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew. Ew. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going! Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters June 14th. Get tickets now. And it's a real pleasure to welcome in Tara Wood. You can find her on Twitter at Tara Wood 66, T-A-R-A-W-O-O-D. And she's got a terrific documentary. It's called QT8, The First Eight. She's a producer and actress known for 21 years, Richard Linklater, QT8, The First Eight, and Net Worth. And this documentary is fantastic. As you take a journey through Tarantino's first eight movies, it's narrated by the actors and collaborators who know him best, Obviously, if you're a Tarantino fan, you're going to open it up and, and love this documentary. And there's so much to get to. Tara, thanks so much for the time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, I love the fact you're going from start to finish. It's so funny. With Tarantino, he's uh, such an expert when it comes to nonlinear storytelling. I was amused. I said, maybe she's <laughs> going to do that. She's going to go from, you know, the hateful eight and then jump over to Reservoir Dogs. But but I like the fact it was in sequential orders you go through his career. And he's obviously a very celebrated filmmaker for good reason. 
Uh, we'll go through it bit by bit. First and foremost, I love the fact that you're telling the story of Tarantino's movies without Tarantino, because I think I've seen him a lot in interviews, and he's obviously a motor mouth and very passionate, and he can talk up a storm. And I feel like if you had him in a documentary talking about his movies, I mean, it might be four hours worth. I mean, particularly him himself, he could just tell his stories for two hours. So I really love the fact that you had <laughs> collaborators like Michael Madsen and Christoph Waltz and... You know, Kurt Russell, people behind the scenes, obviously, stunt people all over the place. Did you, was this a conscious effort or did you reach out to Tarantino at any point for his involvement? So, um, this is part of the series. The first one was uh, 21 years, Richard Linklater. So, when I moved to Quinton after that project, uh, we sent the film to him. And, and so, to answer your, that first question, it was always a plan to not interview the director. Now, when I brought that to Quentin, I, I was a little concerned that he might have issue with that. And that was actually one of the reasons why he loved us and gave us his blessing to move forward. So uh, he, he, I think his comment was how boring it is to listen to someone talk about themselves. <laughs> Coming from Quentin was pretty funny. Um, so, yeah, so he loved the first one and, and gave us his blessing to move forward with this. And I find it really interesting to hear about because we do that naturally. When we want to find out about somebody, we ask other people about them, you know, and, and then you kind of slowly uncover uh, similarities or re repetitive comments or reveals on that person. So I find that much more interesting. It's, it's definitely a different documentary than a traditional way to go. Totally. And you've got, I believe it's Scotty Spiegel. He was the guy who was in the video store with Tarantino. I feel like, you know, Tarantino's origin story, if he was a Marvel superhero, is so well known. The fact that, you know, he was a dropout, but he loved movies. He was in a video store, watched movies all day. Eventually, he writes Reservoir Dogs, and eventually things work out. But it is interesting because I'm sure there were so many people at that time that, oh, well, hey, I work at Blockbuster. I watch three movies a day. I want to be the next Tarantino. I'll write a script. But <laughs> it, it's funny when you go back to Reservoir Dogs and just, you know, how bold that film felt and just the dialogue to this day is so great i watched it again a year ago i mean the first 10 minutes is amazing the whole like a virgin speech and just the confidence of tarantino that's what i found watching it again i said this can't be a first-time filmmaker I, I think it was either Kaitel or tim roth that said that when they first read it, they said there's no way this guy hasn't made a movie before you felt like he was a, a former felon who was writing the story it was based on so much past experience and instead uh, Tarantino was smart to do it because, you know, in the case of Natural Born Killers, he didn't get to direct it. Of course, wrote it. Oliver Stone makes the movie. It's different than Quentin's version of it. True Romance is a great script. He doesn't direct it. Tony Scott does it. Again, it has elements of Tarantino, mm -hmm. but it's different. But here in Reservoir Dogs, he was smart to say, you know what? I'll put it in one spot, primarily location-wise, so it's relatively cheap. It's dialogue-heavy. I'll get the actors I want. And I thought particularly Michael Madsen is great in your documentary, The QT, The Eighth, The First Day, because he really seems impacted by Tarantino. Like Keitel was you know, already a major star, so obviously him giving his blessing to Tarantino and being in the movie um, certainly impacted things. And there's that one funny line where he's like, yeah, of course it's better. I'm here. Like, you know, obviously I'm Harvey Keitel. But mm -hmm. I thought Madsen, particularly the dance sequence, which is, might be the most famous scene from the movie. Tell us a little bit about what Michael Madsen told you about that. I think Michael became the heart of this documentary like he was very uh it, it all spoke from there he really brought love to the documentary and i, I what i found about this we, we all know quentin's public persona and um i think that's the part that we didn't know about him and michael really brought that 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 quentin is very you know quentin's all heart first you know, his love of people, I think, is why his characters are so great. Like, it starts there. So when he was talking about the dance scene and not being able to dance, and he's just so open about it and so self-deprecating, really, <laughs> um, I, thought it was, I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, you know, he wasn't sure what to do. It just says, all right, dance. He's like, how am I going to dance? And then and he ad-libs where he talks in the guy's ear, which is just so... I mean, psychotic and also funny in a weird way. I mean, it's just, just so bizarre watching that scene again. But again, the, the, it was such a bold movie. And then, of course, well, you have Pulp Fiction. Go ahead. Right, of course. And Quentin's way of, I mean, that's part of what makes Quentin Quentin, to make that scene funny, the hor I mean, it's a horrible scene. <laughs> like, if you pull away the humor from that, that you, you'd barely be able to watch that. But he brings that, that element of... Um, he, he brings comedy to that so that he, he just juxtaposes it against each other. Yeah, and, and there's one funny story, Michael. And that, Michael that's Madsen. a perfect example of it. 
Right. And the fact that Michael Madsen and Tim Roth hugged at one point and they needed to get, because they were stuck together, because Quentin really likes, you know, like the fake blood. So they literally, I mean, they didn't have any money. How about this? This was great, Tara, that you had this in the documentary. The fact that Tarantino asked them in the script to all wear black suits and Madsen, I think, didn't have one. So he says his, his, his pants don't match his jacket. And Buscemi is actually wearing black jeans. And even Michael Madsen didn't have black dress shoes. He had to wear black cowboy boots, which came in handy because that's, of course, where he hides the knife when he cuts the guy's ear off. Yeah, it's brilliant. It, it shows, again, uh, Quentin's, you know, when it's in the script and it's in the story, it's a great movie. It doesn't matter how much money you got on it. It's, yeah. He's brilliant. <laughs> brilliant. I'd love to go back to that time. That was the question that went to everybody, actually, like how it was to be back on that set uh, when it's it's just bare bones. And that, that's my favorite film, actually, when it comes back around, the rawness of that. And Quentin still draw it. And he knew exactly what he was doing from day one, like never came across as a first time filmmaker. Yeah, the confidence with that first scene with the camera slowly tracking around them as they're talking, um, you know, all the, the the speech that Chris Penn talks with the guy who has to take a handstand to go take a leak. I mean, there's there's so many moments of comedy and so well written. I mean, God. And um, what I think was amazing as we moved to Pulp Fiction is the fact that Michael Madsen originally was offered the role of John Travolta's character, which I was stunned by. You always feel like, oh, yeah, Tarantino wrote this for Travolta, and they talked about Welcome Back Cotter one night, and they gave him the role, and it was Travolta's comeback. But I had never realized prior to seeing your documentary that Madsen actually was the first choice. Well, I guess that dancing paid off. <laughs> he wanted him to dance again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's funny because you couldn't imagine anybody else but Travolta in that role. You're right. If Madsen would have had to dance again, I mean, forget about it. Pulp Fiction, though, it, it kind of went to a new level. And it's interesting. I think one of the stories, I, I think it's Scott Spiegel in there who says to Tarantino, some of the effect, once they went to Cannes, you know, and it wins the Palm d'Or, he's like, did you have any idea of this? And he <laughs> does like a brief Tarantino press. He's like, ah, no. I, 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 <laughs> I think for anybody that doesn't realize, you know, 25th anniversary of Pulp Fiction, can you put you know, into terms for those who weren't around. I remember seeing it in the theater, and I mean, I was 16 years old and thinking I was keenly aware this was a film that was going to be changing people's minds and influencing filmmakers. But what was that like when Pulp Fiction hit theaters? Because it really did send shockwaves, I feel like, throughout Hollywood. Well, it was massive. It changed the, I think it changed the face of filmmaking, really. the um, What I like about watching this documentary, actually, um, when when you go through that trip with him and you get to can and he's sitting in the audience wait, you know and, and it's announced that Pulp Fiction has won the Palme d'Or like you really feel that excitement from that group um, of, of doing something different and being brave and being acknowledged for it I think you really feel it when you see that scene and it's nice to go back and revisit that no question. QT8, the first day, video on demand release set for December 3rd. We're talking with Tara Wood right now on Cinephile Obviously, Pulp Fiction has been dissected and broken down. It's a brilliant movie on multiple levels. But I uh, watched Jackie Brown again after Robert Forster passed away, and I, he's so brilliant in the movie. He was nominated for an Academy Award, obviously, for supporting actor, and he's been very open about the fact that you know Tarantino kind of put him on the back of the map. But I love the, that story he tells in the doc, that when, when Tarantino says, hey, I got this role for you, I'm adapting Rum Punch, and Forster says with all humility, hey, listen, I don't think the studio's going to go for that. They're not going to go for me. And the fact that Tarantino said, no, no, I'm, I'm put, I, I put whoever I want in my movies. Like, like the fact that Tarantino mm -hmm. would have that kind of confidence, like, no, no, I, I, I call the shots here. And I love Sam Jackson's quote about Jackie Brown. He says, in, in some ways, he thinks that's Tarantino's best movie because of the craft of it and the gentle nature of it and how sweet it is. Yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful film. Yeah, and sitting down with Robert Forster, um, I, I feel so privileged to have been able to sit down with him. Um, he's, he's probably the nicest man I ever met. And he, you know, he brings a, a gift to everybody on set, on every set he goes to. Have you heard this before? I have not, no. He has, yeah. So he, he brought a, a gift wrapped, it looks like a, a long light blue Tiffany box. And it's a silver letter opener that he gives to everybody. And he, he goes out to his trunk and he opens his trunk and he brings all these in and he hands it out to every single person in the crew. That's what a guy. <laughs> uh, and this goes to what I think what Quentin, he, he chooses these people because it's not just based on the character that he's, he's trying to fill, but he, he wants to love this person. And, and everybody that I sat down with, it, it all comes through. 
you realize very quickly why these people were chosen from their personalities. It's very interesting. Yeah. And speaking of personalities, Eli Roth has a great story in there about how Tarantino prepped him for his role and made sure that he was frothed up and fired to go and just, just so, so ready to roll. It was <laughs> really funny. I don't want to spoil that for you. I want them to watch the doc, but it's really good what Eli Roth says. Diane Kruger tells stories. And I like Tarantino's own reflection, the fact that he had said to somebody, hey, that first 10 minutes of Inglorious Bastards, that may be the best writing I've ever done, along with the whole Sicilian scene in True Romance, which is, again, another legendary scene because you got, you know, Christopher Walken and Dennis Hopper going back to back. But that brings me to this. That scene, you know, the Sicilians are spawned by, is filled with the N-word. And then you get to Django Unchained. And as Jamie Foxx talks about, he goes, you know, there's like over 100 N-words being used in this movie opening on Christmas Day, and it becomes the biggest hit of Tarantino's career. Tarantino is not without controversy. Now, you know, you see people who have criticized him for, for the usage of the word, the fact that, you know, his character Jimmy says it in Pulp Fiction and the gratuitous use, I guess I should say, of the N-word. Now, Jamie Foxx mm-hmm. in the movie does have a comeback to it. And he actually mocks Spike Lee, which is an imitation of him. And Sam Jackson also, you know, defends it and says, listen, if, if Steve McQueen does it in 12 Years a Slave because he's an auteur, it's okay if Paul Dano uses the N-word. But if Tarantino does it, people criticize him. What did you get at, at that sense of their defense of Tarantino? Because that is, I think, a, a fair criticism and certainly one that's been lobbied against him in his career. Um, I think Jamie and, and Sam Jackson handled it beautifully. You know, they talked about the, everything that he uh, says and does. There's no untruths about it. Um, he comes from a very human place and he uses it sometimes, you know, to, to amplify a situation. Um, but Never gratuitously. Uh, and I think it was Christoph Waltz who says um, there's nothing gratuitous about anything he does. I don't know. I think the documentary does a good job at, at showing that. I, I don't know how much I want to reveal, actually. <laughs> no, that's fair. There. You're right. That's fair. Well, Christoph Waltz tells one great story just about how, how, how Tarantino's movies are, uh, you know, they get under your skin whether you like it or not. And then he kind of paused. I'm so glad you kept this in because I think some documentarians may have cut it off. But he goes, actually, no, no, he, he wants you to get sucked in. He goes, it's kind of like going to a whorehouse and wanting to get syphilis. Oh, that's a great line. <laughs> that's a great line. Yeah. <laughs> No, I was going to say, another criticism of Tarantino is the, the situation which happened with Uma Thurman in the Kill Bill movies. For those who are unaware, I don't know the exact context. If there wasn't a stunt driver available or he, he just wanted Uma to drive to make it look real, more realistic. But regardless, he had her do her own stunt and it ends up being a terrible car crash, which resulted in permanent injuries she had to her neck and I believe her back. And it really soured the relationship between star and director. Ethan Hawke. At the time, I believe it was already split up from him with Thurman. Even he flew back from whatever film he was and was furious with Tarantino, you know, confronted him, you know, almost accosted him. Like, what are you doing, man? Like, what, what, are, you, what are you putting your actors in peril for? And Tarantino, you have a quote from him saying that, you know, it's, it's one of the great regrets of my career. And you have Madsen talking about it. But, you know, within every documentary, the many facet you're focusing on someone's life, certainly that would, I think, be a low point for Tarantino, how he handled that situation. Did you get any sense that he changed matters after that? If he was... Um, be acting a little bit too much gusto when it came to his actors and stunts. Did he realize after that what happened to Uma Thurman that he had to be more careful with actors? Well, I think that's why he chose Zoe Bell for Death Proof. Uh, what happened with Uma obviously was devastating to him. He lo- he loves Uma, um, and from what I understand, they they definitely fell out after that happening. Uh, but they have since resolved it and resolved it relatively quickly. Um, after the event, uh, but her anger continued because of the withholding of that footage by the producers. Um, but Quentin, yes, I, I believe Quentin did realize um, there's there's some risks you don't take, and he chose Zoe, Zoe Bell to lead Death Proof so that we could see her on the hood of a car. And she is a stunt woman, and she can pull that off. So, yeah, I, I definitely think he adjusted after that. Uh, it's interesting with Death Proof. You have Kurt Russell talk about the movie, and he's he's always entertaining and funny as well. And I'm a real fan of Hateful Eight. I know you said earlier you love Reservoir Dogs, as do I, but I I really loved Hateful Eight because I thought it was a real throwback to Reservoir Dogs, and particularly the way I saw it. I saw it in Dallas uh, as part of the road show, and so it was 70 millimeter. There was an intermission, there was an interlude. Like it, it felt like a real movie event. I remember that the audio quality was so good. You could I can still hear the wind whistling. You know, it was so cold. They're like, shut the door, shut the door. You know, put the two blocks of wood there. And so 
I remember watching it again on on uh, at home, and it was fine. I mean, it, but it wasn't nearly as strong an event as it was in the theater. And so I I find maybe I'm maybe an apologist for it, but I, I just love that experience so much. Where are you on the hateful eight? Because I think it really holds up well, particularly when Sam Jackson tells that whole monologue just to just to fire up Bruce Dern. I mean, that whole sequence is amazing. That's, yeah, that's an intense monologue. I, I think um, hateful eight is beautiful, and I think I agree that that's something that that's a film that needed to be seen in the theater because it was shot on 70 millimeter. I mean, it's absolutely beautiful. And I think it was Stacey Sher says that you can get deeper into the, into the minds and the character of these characters. Um, the intermission was great. I loved the road show. I thought it was fantastic. And it's uh, and it's definitely a bookend to Reservoir Dogs. And I think he came full circle with that, you know, he, he and then once upon a time in Hollywood definitely moves off. You know, now it seems like he's into another phase of his life where he's he's looking back and just enjoying. He knows what he loves, right? So now he's exploring. He loves Los Angeles, so he's exploring Los Angeles. And Los Angeles, in that time, he has he completely recreated for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's gorgeous. So he, uh, Hateful Eight and Reservoir Dogs bookended that part of his life, and I think he's moved on now. He's always said he's only going to make 10 movies. That means he only got one more. He's been linked to a Star Trek mm. movie, potentially. So I don't know if he's going to write it or just direct it, if that counts as 10. Tim Ross says in there he's going to live to at least 100. Maybe it's Madsen that says it because he goes, there's so much stuff Tarantino wants to do. He goes, he wants to direct plays. He wants to write books about film criticism. Um, he's obviously going to be very active. But in terms of movies, he's been very fanatical about just doing the 10. Do you think this is something he will stick to? Is this like Daniel Day-Lewis walking away after Phantom Thread, despite the fact he's got more acting left to do because Tarantino has so much else he wants to do? Or can we cross our fingers and say, no, no, come on, QT can't possibly walk away from making more movies after whatever that 10th film will be? Well, if we look back on the first eight, he's done how many more in addition to those eight? First, Kill Bill is considered one. So he, he changed our idea on that. Um, but he, he does other films. His tenth is going to be written and directed by. Whether that be Star Trek, I don't know. But I don't think I don't think he's going anywhere. Is my answer to that? I think he's going to probably do some other co-productions or co-direction, maybe with his buddy Robert Rodriguez again. Um, his his last one. I think we're going to have to wait a while for that. That's my opinion. I, I think he's going to be busy with other projects though. I don't think Star Trek is going to be considered his tent. So they'll probably co-write it. Okay, that's good news. At least we can expect more from him. You don't focus. I like the fact, Terry, you really focused on his work and his movies. But as far as a guy, I mean, listen, you're dealing with all his collaborators. Did they talk about him as a person? I know he got married, you know, late in life. I don't know if he's got a family, wants to start a family, that kind of stuff. Did they give you details or divulge a little bit about uh, Quentin's personal life? Uh, They were very protective of of his personal life. Um, I think what comes out, personally is that he's he's very loyal and he he loves his his people and he's uh much more driven by his heart than what the general public thinks um i think that's what's come out personally but now they they don't share nor did i cry about uh his personal life it was discussed that he chose not to get married or have relationships or start a family which he has now since decided to do um, because he did dedicate himself to his filmmaking. I, I think he's, he's so different in that respect than, than others. Like films up until this point, maybe that has changed a little bit for him, but up through these first eight, those films came first, or films in general came first. And that was it. And he knew that about himself, and he didn't engage in relationships with other people to... Uh, knowing that he wasn't going to put his time into them. I think that's fascinating. I think that says a lot about his personality. That's what I learned about him personally anyway. Yeah, and he's he's such a movie lover, of course. He's a real almanac of film. Abbas Karastami, who's the great Iranian filmmaker, made Taste of Cherry. He spoke about years ago at Cannes. He goes, you know, Tarantino was so kind to him and so generous 
talking about his movies. And then when Kiarostami was asked if he likes Tarantino's movies, he said, no. <laughs> he said, nothing personal. I just don't, you know, not for me. I don't really like the violence and I'm not really that thing. But but Tarantino can be the kind of guy who will like, a, you know, a sweet, gentle film, which is from Tehran. And at the same time, he can, you know, make a guy's head getting blown off in Pulp Fiction quite funny. So it's interesting. You know, his films are not for everyone, but it seems like he is very inclusive when it comes to all the films that he loves. Last question for you. You deal with the Harvey Weinstein stuff in here as well. How delicate was mm-hmm. that for you in talking to his collaborators about Tarantino's relationship with a guy who he was very close with? I mean, clearly, you think of the rise of Miramax, you think of the rise of Tarantino and how intertwined they were. Obviously, Quentin is now breaking away with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But how tricky was that to navigate from your perspective, the relationship between Harvey and Quentin? It was obviously the most difficult part of this documentary. Um, People were very uncomfortable to talk about it. Uh, We decided to go with um, Michael's presentation of how that went down. We didn't give much of an opinion on, um, on it either way. Um, I, I, I think it's horrible that uh, Clinton had to, to go through that because from what I understand, Harvey was somewhat of a father figure to him. Um, but, but for the documentary, it was very difficult to navigate that and how to present it and not make it, not have the documentary turn into the Quentin Harvey documentary, because that's definitely not what it is. Um, but we have to address Harvey and his filmography, because without Harvey, we, I don't believe we'd have Quentin and vice versa. So um, I, I, I do they definitely created each other. You know, Harvey took the risk on him when nobody else would. Um, and, and these eight bring the, the end of an era with regard to that. So it was very tricky and difficult and um, a bit heartbreaking to, to bring that story in. Do you think Kurt Russell is playing Weinstein? Hopefully I handled it well. <laughs> yeah. Do you think Kurt Russell is playing Weinstein in Hateful Eight? Well, I, I think Quentin explores things the way he does and yeah i think there's a little bit of harvey in there yeah but as they say you know kurt russell's very charming you're you're not going to see what was on the page originally i don't think in kurt russell <laughs> there's no comparison between those two so as much as he tried i don't, I don't think he really revealed a, a true harvey weinstein and in john ruth <laughs> yeah it's a great performance and obviously russell's such a good actor QT8, The First Eight. It's a must-watch documentary. If you're a fan of Quentin Tarantino, if you're a lover of film, Tara Wood is the filmmaker behind it. You can follow her on Twitter, at TaraWood66. The video-on-demand release set for December 3rd, QT8, The First Eight. I can't thank you enough for the documentary, and I can't thank you enough for the time. It's a wonderful piece of work and a wonderful filmmaker. So kudos to you, Tara. It really is exceptional. Thank you. Thank you very much. Mount Rushmore. All right, now it's time for the Mount Rushmore of Sopranos characters. Once again, thanks to Tara Wood. Check out QT8, the first date. Awfully tough to only pick out four characters, but really easy here, Joe. Obviously, Tony is one of them. Just a magnificent character, brilliantly played by James Gandolfini, the true anti-hero of this era with so many other anti-heroes that spawned up after him, whether it was Don Draper or... You know, uh, Walter White, there's so many others. But honestly, Tony Soprano is in a class of himself. So three other spots here to look at. This is where it gets a little dicey. I'm going to go with Christopher. I love Michael Imperioli. In many ways, I related to this character. You know, young gangster. He's on the rise. Uh, he loves movies. He wants to be a screenwriter. I mean, all that stuff I loved about Christopher. I did not uh, relate to the fact he's obviously a drug addict and uh, physically abusive to a significant other. But I, I just loved Imperioli's performance and thought he gave it so much heart for this guy who really in many ways is a detestable character so i'm going with tony and christopher two slots left who do you think we should get in here i know people love paulie because he's so funny i don't think he has a lot of 
of depth as a character, to be perfectly honest. For periphery characters, I always love Bobby Bacala. I think he's such a sweet character. I think I got to get Carmela in there because she is so important to the show. Edie Falco is brilliant. She won three Emmy Awards. Livia Soprano is unbelievable as a mother. She was such a monstrous presence in the show. Drea DiMatteo is unforgettable in so many ways. I mean, you go on and on. You can start to eliminate. I think you can knock out AJ. You can knock out Meadow. You can knock out Silvio. As much as I like him, okay, yeah, Springsteen's buddy. You know, I don't think he's critical as far as the top four. So, but having said all that, Joe, give me two more slots here because Tony and Chris, I think, are, are absolute locks. I think you have to go with the ultimate foil character in the show, and that's Dr. Melfi. And yeah. it provides so much insight into Tony, his psyche, what he's feeling in these moments. I think you have to throw in Dr. Melfi there. It is critical, right? That's what separated the show from so many other shows. It wasn't just another mob show. Like, no, he's actually talking to a therapist. And those scenes were so critical because that was a window into Tony. You know, he would kill a guy and then all of a sudden you'd see him talking to Melfi about his business, how he felt about it, et cetera. Like without, that's a good point. If you look at it in terms of just importance to the show, without Melfi's character, you have a completely different show. And Lorraine Bracco played it so well, always very cool and calm. And Employee of the Month is one of the best episodes ever. Okay, we'll get Melfi in there. All right, one more. Who do you got here for the final spot? I think I, I'm going to suggest Junior Soprano. Um, he is really funny. I was about to say, my buddy Lovelock, he, he was his favorite character because he just said he was so funny. He's got so many... If you look at funniest characters, him and Polly are 1A, 1B, and just the scenes where he stands up to Tony, the fact that he, I mean, he ordered his son, his, his nephew to be murdered, and yet he, you know, you feel sorry for him when he's in the throes of dementia. The fact he actually shoots him, and he, Malanga, he shoots him, that seems unbelievable. Junior's a pretty great one, man. Dominic Chinese, great actor. Definitely. I mean, if, if you want to go honorable mention, I would throw in AJ because he got fired from Blockbuster for <laughs> selling the standees. Um, but I think I would throw in Junior before AJ. All right, I feel pretty good about this list. Tony, Christopher, Junior, and Melfi. I, I feel a little bit... Uh, That's tough. Sick. We couldn't, couldn't get Carmela in there. I mean, Carmela is so important. I mean, God, she's the wife of yeah. the mobster. But I, I like your idea on Melfi. That is actually good logic. There. We've seen mob wives before. You've never seen a so-called mob therapist. So that's our four. If you don't like it, let us know. Tweet us, CinephilePod, C-I-N-E-P-H-I-L-E, pod. Or you can tweet me as well, Adnan Esferk. That is our Mount Rushmore. And now it's time for the final ever episode, or installment, I should say, of the Bada Binge. The Bada Binge. All right, now it's time for the final edition of The Bada Binge. That's right. Although there's a Sopranos convention taking place, I believe, this weekend. I think it might be taking place in the Meadowlands. So maybe I'll be able to show up and uh, see if I can, you know, accost TV Van Zandt or something and do a Sopranos convention uh, special next time on Cinephile. But for now, yes, this is the final time we're recapping the entire show, the greatest show of all time in my estimation, 20th anniversary. Episode 7, Season 7, it is the second coming. And this time you get more pain as really the show is building up. I think this is one of the most painful episodes as AJ tries to kill himself in the pool where Tony's beloved ducks once represented his desire for a family party. And, you know, this is the episode after he kills his surrogate son in Christopher, Michael Imperioli, and now Tony barely gets home in time to save his actual son's life, one of the more harrowing sequences the show has ever done. You've also got Coco sexually harassing Meadow, the daughter of a boss, so you can really tell that, that Phil is up in the ante here and really starting to piss off Tony. Even as Phil tells Butchie he's done with compromises and explains to Tony, in the can, compromise meant, at best, getting a very pale imitation of what you wanted— grilled cheese on a radiator instead of manicotti, masturbating into a tissue instead of sex with a woman. And Phil right now clearly is itching for a war at this point. He wants to go to war with Tony. He doesn't care. He's still vengeful for what happened with the past. Also, one footnote here from the book, The Soprano Sessions, Matt Zoller cites in Alan Sepinwall's instructive book. Silvio reads a book called How to Clean Practically Anything, an incredibly useful text in their line of work. But honestly, this episode I keep thinking about is because AJ tries to kill himself. And Tony's reaction to his suicide is incredible. Um, he does what's right. He dives in to save his son, despite the fact he's wearing a full suit and his kid's drowning. Oh my God, of course. React. Go, 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 go. Uh, then he reverts to macho type, berating AJ for his stupidity and weakness and resents the vulnerability, perhaps. But then he turns non-judgmental, purely empathetic. He cradles his weeping son and cries with him. Maybe the most heart-rending moment in the entire series, sharply acted by both James Gandolfini and Robert Eiler. 
But then he reverts again, with both Melfi admitting he despises AJ's sensitivity, his weakness, and Carmella pushing her into an argument that pivots on who's genetically responsible for AJ's depression. Blame he shifts later with Melfi to Carmella for coddling AJ. Here, Tony admits his depression and his family history of it more frankly than at any other point in the show, but he ultimately pulls back, staunches his bleeding feelings, and tries to soldier on a gangster Gary Cooper. It is a heartbreaking episode for fathers and sons, whoever's watching. That scene where he's just cradling his son and telling him, I got you, baby. I got you, baby. It is just, it's heartbreaking. We get to the second last episode, penultimate episode, The Blue Comet. Dr. Melfi finally takes Elliot's advice and fires Tony as a patient. But it's Bobby Bacala's death that is unbelievable. It's one of the best episodes of the entire show, The Blue Comet. I know I keep saying it, but trust me, this was a great, great episode, especially Bobby's death. He gets shot in a model train shop while coveting a scale model of a defunct train car that titles the episode. The prize toy is a very busy little metaphor. On an obvious level, it stands for any nostalgic impulse the gangsters have ever demonstrated, the lionizing of the good old days when gangsterism supposedly had rules. Tony's criticizing the ongoing pussification of the American white man and asking whatever happened to Gary Cooper. Meantime, Bobby's execution is intercut with a model train diving off a broken trestle bridge, which seems like a too obvious godfather borrowing, a murder intercut with something mundane, until you remember Phil's contemptuous earlier statement implying the Sopranos aren't even a real family, but a pygmy clan that needs to be wiped out. They're scale models of gangsters, and Phil intends to smash them like a toy train set. As he crushes them, it's difficult to muster much sympathy for the vanquished because Chase has exposed their selfishness unmercifully. Thanks to the ever more conspicuously nasty behavior exhibited this season, often by characters who might otherwise be inclined to identify with, like Bobby becoming colder after making his bones, it's hard to get choked up over the destruction and self-destruction of Tony or the members of his blood and crime families. The series has underlined, italicized, and bold-faced the fact they're all killers or tacit enablers of killers. As we watch them go down, we might as well be watching a toy train derail. Orson Welles once called Citizen Kane the greatest electric train set any boy ever had. It's almost like the filmmakers are playing with their trains and showing what they can do here. Not only do you get Bobby Bach like, getting murdered, who is just... I mean, he's such a well-liked character. See him go down. You've also got Elliot just badgering Melfi. The fact that he basically reveals Tony's identity to all the other people at dinner party with a trivia question says the answer is a female opera singer and a gangster. It just shows that Melfi knows she's got to get out. But ultimately, she decides she's had enough of Tony. She kicks him out using his theft of a magazine page from her waiting room as the pretext. This is the doctor-patient equivalent of Al Capone going to prison for income tax evasion rather than his more serious crimes but it gets the job done for Melfi, a mostly ethical person who has indulged a monster far too long because maybe she got a vicarious thrill out of it and maybe she thought she could actually help him. There's also one scene where Tony, Sill, and Bobby, they start shadowboxing after Tony makes the call. A moment presented in slow motion scored to Mascani's Cavalleria Rusticana, famously used in Raging Bull which happens in the movie where Frank Vincent first made a name for himself. Interesting bit of music there. And we get to the ending of The Sopranos. So seriously, what happened? It's a fairly mundane episode. You get uh, AJ getting a job for Little Carmine's production company. The first assignment is Antivirus, a script cleaver star Daniel Baldwin gave Tony, including a detective who gets sucked into the internet through his data port and has to solve some murders of some virtual prostitutes. This is what Tony's son is going to be up to now. He's in the movie business. As for his daughter, Meadow, well, she's going to be a lawyer now. So no matter what, she's not leaving the family business. She'll be protecting mobsters one day, and she's also going to be marrying into the family with Patsy Parisi. So you finally get to the ending and say, okay, what's this all about? And honestly, it's puzzling and it's infuriating, but it is in character with the show because the show always wanted to subvert expectations. And you get a final sequence there of Uncle Junior where Tony tells him, you and my dad, you two ran North Jersey. And Corrado just kind of ponders and says, well, that's nice. He's dead, not physically, but certainly his brain is. And you can see the sadness of the fact that Meadows literally, like I said, marrying into the family. AJ is lazy, going to work in the movies. You do get Phil's murder, one final bit of deadly soprano slapstick, uh, his skull a concluding indignity to the Leotardo clan. But ultimately, what does the ending mean? Well, he chooses journeys don't stop believing. So what does that mean? Don't stop believing the show's over? You also get Tony telling Carmela it's Carlo. He's going to testify. One of the members of the crew is a rat. Carmela's grave expression indicates that this could mean trouble down the road. The bell rings again. You see a middle-aged white guy in a members-only jacket. That's a little extra textual gag because members-only is the title of the season six premiere in which Eugene Pontecorvo, who wore a members-only jacket himself, hung himself because he's unable to escape mob life. 
And then Meadow, of course, comes into the restaurant. The final scene is just so much tension. It's unbearable. You're not sure what's going to happen. And then you see Tony look up and bam. And Meadow successfully parks the car. She runs across the street. We worry she might get hit by a car. Tony looks up. Boom, cut to black. The sound cuts out. Ten seconds of nothing. The credit rolls. And there is no music. Everybody can debate it. And David Chase will never say. But I think ultimately it's not Tony that got whacked. It's we that got whacked. We the audience. Because it's from Tony's point of view. He's looking at us. And then boom, we get a shot to the head. And there's no music. There's no noise. Just as when uh, Silvio saw that hit, there was no noise. Even as Bobby Bacala is talking to Tony in the boat, you probably hear nothing when it happens happens that's what i think there's honestly other options as well maybe tony does get murdered in front of his family maybe tony does go living on and it's paranoia that's going to have to deal with the rest of his life but honestly i think the fact that you never hear it coming it's a silent bullet it's us that get whacked and as the journey song is playing don't stop believing joe what do you think what happens at the end of the sopranos is tony alive or is tony dead i have lost sleep over this question as i'm sure many many people have i i personally believe tony was killed I was in the camp of that he was alive, and I went down the whole, you know, article hole of just reading about it. I personally think that he was whacked. But I don't know. I think David, I mean, he really left it up for interpretation. So what, what do you think? I was going to say, at the time, I was furious, and I thought it was such a cop. And I said, you give me 86 episodes, you can't give me a resolution. Like, this is brutal. But now over time, I, I really do appreciate the ending because it was so gutsy and so bold. And I think that, yeah, like I said, it's the audience that gets whacked. I think Tony's alive. We're the ones that get whacked because it's from his POV. And that we're, David Chase is essentially killing us. Hey, you guys don't get to watch anymore. It's done. So in that respect, I do think Tony lives. And I think that he's he's playing off all the conventions of the fact that Tony dies. You know, you see a guy going to the bathroom, and because we've seen so many mob movies, oh, it's The Godfather. This is going to be Michael Corleone coming out with a gun. Um, you know, two black guys walk in. Oh, remember, there's two black guys that tried to kill him before. They attempted, uh, you know, hijacking way back uh, earlier in the series. So I think he's playing with us and saying, oh, look, look, look what happened. Oh, it's over. Your journey is over. All right? Don't stop believing the show's over. Your journey is done. Whatever happened to him, you guys are never going to know. So I, I think it's a it's a weird answer, but I guess I'm saying I think he's alive or he's dead. I actually don't even know. I just think that we're dead. Does that make sense? I, I think it does. And I think the thing I love about that finale is that the Sopranos, the, the final episode, unlike a lot of shows, has kind of a bow that's tied, you know, and there's resolution to Breaking Bad. Spoiler alert, Walter White dies. Jesse is off in the car. But here, it just seems like business continues as normal with the final episode. So maybe there's, you know, maybe he is alive. And maybe you're right that we are the ones that died. And our journey was the one that ended. Thanks so much for enjoying and indulging us here on the Bada Binge. Thanks, as always, to Joe Tara Wood uh, for her uh, work here on QT8, the first date. Go check it out. Video on demand, December 3rd. We'll be back next time around. I appreciate all of you listening. This is Adnan Burke. I'll see you at the movies. Time inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.